Chapter 5 in a sermon called Breaking Bad and how only Jesus can break bad in us. And uh, the reason we're hopping over to Mark for a night, if you've been paying attention, you know that uh, we're supposed to be in the Gospel of Luke this spring. Well, have you ever heard the term synoptic gospel? Synoptic is a word, syn, S-Y-N means together, and optic is obviously see. And so the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are designed to be seen together. Because they kind of report the same events. They speak about the same history. And so they repeat each other a lot. Maybe you've read through the Gospels before and you're like, wow, this keeps coming up again. And it's like if someone got mugged outside the auditorium and there were three eyewitnesses and you interviewed them individually. You should expect there's going to be tremendous continuity between their three accounts. But also their details may be a little different. Maybe one of them's an artist and they pick up on details in a really neat way. Maybe one of them's an engineer, and all they say is someone got mugged, and they don't notice the rest of the details. Their personalities are going to affect what they are drawn to. And so the passage we're going to look at tonight, it's actually the very next passage that comes after what we talked about last week. You know when Jesus said, let's cross the lake to the other side? The passage I'm about to read, this is where he was going. And so this picks up right there. It's just that Mark includes a few more details than, than Luke. And so uh, I want to go with Mark tonight because uh, we pick up a little bit more flavor um, in that. And so that's what we're going to do. Here are the three points uh, on your sheet. Uh, the first is this. It's a quote from Paul Tripp, who I, I quote a lot. He said, you can't use external solutions or cures to fix an internal problem like evil. Number two, Jesus is more committed and he's more qualified to deliver us from evil than we will, we will ever be, which is really good news. Uh, And number three, Jesus' deliverance from evil uh, either makes us beg him to leave or makes us beg him to stay. Um, And so uh, go ahead and stand up for me and we will read this passage uh, out of respect for this being God's word to you. This is a passage about demon possession. It's a passion that talks a lot about evil. And so it could be really hard uh, for a lot of us to talk about. Here this is good news though. Hear this, uh, if you're a Christian, as what Jesus has delivered you from and continually never tires of delivering you from. If you don't know Jesus, hear good news that he offers. He is ready, willing, and able to deliver you from these things uh, and this kind of heart. And so this is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is picking up right after the storm. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. 
but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces, and nobody had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said to him, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you or plead with you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, for Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. He was sitting there. He was clothed. He was in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might go with him. But Jesus didn't permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has shown mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, it's a a ten-city region in the area, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Uh, Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, this is heavy stuff. We are confronted in this passage what seems to be a freak show. It seems to be someone so dissimilar to us. And yet, uh, Lord, if we're honest and if we read with open eyes, we see a lot of ourselves, maybe too much of ourselves to be comfortable in this man. Someone isolated from community. Someone destroying himself. Someone suspicious of you. And Lord... uh, We confess that uh, as evil was in his heart, evil is in our heart. And we confess that as he desperately needed you to deliver him, we also need you to deliver us. And so uh, I pray, my prayer tonight is simple. Again, that we would see you as you are. Give us faith, work faith in our hearts that we can see you and love you and trust you. And know that if we are in you, we are free to struggle. We are not struggling to be free against impossible odds. And so we ask this in your name with great expectation. Amen. All right. Let's take a seat. Thanks. So when I was a little kid, this is back in the mid-80s, there was a commercial. Why is there laughter there? I don't get that. Uh, When I was a kid, there was a commercial that would come on all the time, Uh, pretty much even on kids shows like in between the the commercial breaks whenever I was watching TV. And it was a really simple but very memorable commercial. And this is what it was. It was a camera trained on a person holding an egg. And the narrator, he only said these words, this is your brain. And then the person cracked the egg into a really hot frying pan that was on the stove. And the narrator said, and this is your brain on drugs. Have you seen the commercial? 
pretty famous. It's uh, probably uh, some grainy video on YouTube now or on a VHS cassette your parents have. But, but that, that commercial always stuck with me, and it was very powerful uh, back in the 80s during this, the height of the drug war. And, and the reason the government put so much money into that commercial and the reason it might have had some impact is because it brought together two things that evil and sin always push way apart from each other. Action and consequence. Or you could say, kind of using the language of our pastor tonight, sin and death, right? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And by now you've all heard the sad, sad news about Philip Seymour Hoffman a couple of weeks ago. If you'd asked him when he was sitting in your chair in college, hey, how would you expect you die years, years down the road? Do you think he would have said, I'm going to die with a heroin needle still stuck in my arm and 70 bags of heroin strewn about my apartment? Somewhere along the line, action and consequence got disconnected. Somewhere along the line, sin and death became two way separated things. And that's kind of how sin has such an allure to us and evil, evil. The stuff that ruined your week or your day or your month or your life, the stuff that hurts, the stuff that puts tension in between us and other people and us and God, that's the kind of evil I'm talking about. Somewhere along the line, what gets shielded from our eyesight or our emotions or our feelings is the death part of it, the destruction part of it. And all we see is the near side. And so it looks very sweet, very alluring, uh, which is why something even like heroin can actually become attractive to people uh, because you were blinded from the distant effects of it. And so that commercial was bringing into one frame, one little frame, sin and death, action and consequence. And it had a really powerful impact. Mark is doing the same thing here, I think. He's bringing into the same frame sin and death, Action and consequence. Two things that are often separated apart, but he's bringing them all up and together, which is why this passage is pretty difficult to read through. This is unsettling stuff. And I almost want to apologize for how much I have to use the word evil, but it's in the passage a lot, and so we need to talk about it. Um, But Mark is bringing both of those things into uh, into the frame as well. And before we get any further, I have to, you've got to take my word for this, that this passage is, is written to people like you and me. Because Mark, he's a pastor, he's like a college minister, and he's not like way out of the loop, and he thinks that he's writing his letter to a room full of people possessed by 2,000 demons apiece, right? He gets that he's writing to a room full of people like us with the kind of lives that we have right now and the kind of weeks that we've had. But, but Mark assumes that there's something really common And very similar between this guy, who I said in my prayer almost seems like a freak show, and us. And here's the commonality. Here's the connection point that you can listen for between us and this demon-possessed man. And I'll talk a little bit about uh, demon possession in a minute, though not a lot. But here's the the connection point. If you look at the, the DNA of the evil that was in his heart and the evil that's in our hearts, there's a 100% positive match. Now... I will grant you easily that it was much more amplified. The, it, this guy, this, this demon-possessed man, evil in him, it's like evil with the volume turned all the way up. Evil in a dramatic way, in a unique, in a rare way with the demon possession. Yeah, in us, more subtle, more vague, less volume maybe, 
but the DNA is, is a perfect match. It's the same kind of encoded evil that's in him and is in us. And that's why this makes it in Mark's book to people like us in the church. And so we do have a lot in common with the guy. And, and here's some of the key points of, of what we have in common with him. And as usual, maybe pull this out and follow along with me and, and kind, of, kind of track with where I'm going here. Uh, this is kind of building up to the first point, is that evil is always, and without exception, uh, a few of these things, and I'm, I'll tick through real quick. It's always self-destructive. Evil is always self-destructive. It's never not self-destructive. It's never constructive. It never builds. It only tears down. It only destroys. It only vandalizes. It never beautifies. It never furthers. It never prospers. It never enlivens. It only drains. Look down at verse 5. Look at this man. Look at what life had come to for this man. Uh, excuse, uh, yeah, verse 5. He says, night and day in a graveyard. He's to the point where he's doing life in a graveyard, living in a graveyard now. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So you see, like, evil's an anti-creator. Evil's kind of the opposite of God in that sense. God says, let there be light. He says, let there be life. He, said, he creates. Evil comes right back and brings darkness in. Evil undoes. Evil unravels. And the closer that thing is to God, the more evil is interested in unraveling it. Right? And so, of all the stuff in creation, what do you think is the bullseye of evil? The image bearers of God. And so all of us have a unique target on our back from evil. Um, and you see it in this passage in a pretty dramatic way. But evil spoils us, spoils our relationships. Uh, how, do you, how do you see this kind of in our own lives, the connection points between this, demo, this by the way, a demoniac, the Bible uses that word for people who are possessed by demons. This demoniac um, is cutting himself with stones. We don't exactly know why, but what's the connection point to us? Well, you, can, you can start kind of literally, and then we can kind of move out from there. But if you want to start literally and bodily, how evil destroys us, how evil is kind of self-destruction. Suicide. Uh, what evil does with that is it makes, uh, what it makes the epitome of death and destruction actually a desperate, but a, in a sense, a hopeful open door out of distress, out of chaos. It, it disconnects, even with something like that, it disconnects the consequence from action. And it says, here's a way out. And I don't make light of this because this is, it's a real thing. It is so persuasive to people who struggle with that. Self-mutilation. It says you can be in control again. You don't have to be a victim of being ambushed by pain. So you can cut to control the pain, to, to, prom- to know when the pain's going to come, to kind of have a leg up on an unpredictable life. And then you get, you get kind of further away from there into figurative things like even eating disorders. It, it holds out life and it destroys. It holds out promise. Uh, and in the back door, it, it kind of, it stabs us. Sexual sin promises intimacy. What does it do? It hardens a heart so much that intimacy is the very thing you never get because we become kind of self-consuming parasites of other people, right? How does intimacy grow in that environment? So sin, sin is self-destructive. Evil is self-destructive. And this passage is such a vivid depiction of that. You can't miss it. Number two, evil always isolates us from other people. 
Did you catch all of the no ones in the passage? Verse 3. The man lived among the tombs because no one could bind him or subdue him. He's banished. He's alone. Night and day, he goes around the mountains. He goes around the tombs. And he cuts himself. And the townspeople had, had kind of thrown in the towel on this guy. They've given up. They've apparently tried a lot of different solutions. None of them worked. Shackles, chains, whatever else. Who knows what they tried beyond that. But it all... Uh, but none of it works. And so the man is alone. And it's a picture of how uh, evil and sin does the same thing in our lives. It always sends two persons in opposite directions from each other. It's antisocial. It's anti-relationship. And we talked a little bit on the retreat about relationships. And I think, I mean, one of the takeaways from that was our problem isn't so much uh, just with specific people. We all have relationship problems with relationships. Our relationship with relationships is broken. It's not just our relationship with individual people, but our relationship with how we do relationship is broken because of this kind of stuff. It sends us off by ourselves in isolation, lonely, looking down into the valley at the other people who have life better than us or looking down our nose at the people who have life worse than us. But there's a, there's a wall in between us all and a wall in between us and God, and so it isolates. It's like the lion that kind of takes the, um, the little uh, antelope off the herd and isolates it, and it does its damage alone, just like this guy, alone, and life is careening out of control, which is the other thing that it does. It spirals us out of control. No one could bind him. No one had the strength to subdue him. This guy is hopeless. He's out of control. Uh, He's beyond the point of resolutions and trying harder and seeing if he can get his act together. He is completely out of control. What do we take away from that? Evil is much stronger than our willpower. You've got to hear that. Because otherwise you'll spend the rest of your life trying harder and harder and harder to defeat something that God never calls you to defeat. Evil is infinitely stronger than your willpower and my willpower and my strength and my self-discipline and my I'm going to try harder at fill in the blank. God doesn't want us fighting evil in that regard. He wants us coming to the conqueror of evil uh, who will fight on our behalf. Uh, The only way you can fight evil is if evil is already defeated and kind of wiggling on the floor waiting to die. And you can kick it while it's down as a Christian. But you have no business getting in the ring with evil if you're not in Jesus because it towers above you and it laughs at the thought that you would ever throw up your fists against it. And so that's what we see is that evil, it, it kind of, it's, we're complete, it makes us completely out of control. We're not in the driver's seat anymore. We're in the trunk, tied up. The last thing I want to point out is that evil always pits us against God. You know, when you look down at the passage, do you see this as kind of like a, 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 a confession of praise or uh, a guy bowing before Jesus and worshiping him? When the, when the man says, he falls at Jesus' feet. And he falls down before me, crying with a loud voice in verse 6. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you. Or basically, adjure means command. I command you by God, don't torture me. This isn't the humble plea of a man who all of a sudden wants to worship Jesus. He can't. He's out of control, right? This guy isn't in control of himself. And so this is the picture of someone coming to Jesus and almost saying, what's your deal with me? Don't you dare Torture me. Don't you dare mess with me. How do we know this is, this is what's going on? Because Jesus asked him right after this, hey, what's your name? 
And he says, I am legion, Roman legion, 2,000 soldiers. We are many. You really want to mess with us? One little man, 2,000. What kind of fight is that going to be? This is a proudful, arrogant, cocky evil. That's the DNA of all evil. But it pits us against God. It, it makes us suspect of ourselves that God is actually a torturer. God is a life taker. That's what, the, that's what this, these demons in this man, when they see God face to face, God becomes the tormentor, the torturer, the life taker um, of them. And apparently evil is the life protector and the life giver. And it's all backwards again. And then evil defends itself to the death. And this is really hard to, uh, to take a look at. But this demon asks not to be destroyed. It asks to be sent into the pigs uh, instead of um, being kind of eradicated right then and there. Uh, and Jesus grants the permission. We probably see a picture of why he does when we see what happens to the pigs right afterwards. They're, they're destroyed in the sea. But you see that evil is still bargaining with God to the last minute. Please, 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 please. No, 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 no. Just kidding. Uncle. Let me get out. Let me go somewhere else. Let me take on a new form. It's always willing to bargain, and it's fighting to the death. But death is what it ends up getting. Because it goes into the pigs, and we see the natural conclusion of sin and evil is death. 2,000 pigs running over a cliff. And so death is kind of how we sum all of that up. Now again, super, super easy to see in this demoniac, right? This is like a billboard, We don't have to work too hard. You don't have to be a theologian to say, this guy's messed up, right? But when we turn back and you say, okay, well, Ben said this is a passage written to us too. Mark apparently isn't writing to a church full of uh, people with thousands of demons in them. How does this apply to us? How do we get turned around? How do we get turned upside down? Do we still see things like hooking up as life? Do we see that as a life giver? Uh, Or do we see it as a soul-hardening, relationally isolating, God-suspicion-producing life-taker? Something that always makes us see God as a tormentor and a torturer. Something that actually puts distance between us and that person and us and God. Something that actually produces self-destruction in us. Which do we see it as? When we think about gossip, do we see it as electric, fun, kind of keeps an edge on life when I get to talk about other people's crap? Or when I get to rejoice in other people's downfall? Do we see that as life? Or do we see that as self-destruction, relationally isolating, laziness? Do we see it only as rest, or do we see it as being out of control? Kind of an accumulation of many, many decisions to say, I'm going to back away from responsibility. I'm going to back away from hardship. And I'm going to lounge around. I'm going to escape. Do we see that as a life taker or a life giver? These are the ways that Mark is kind of wrestling with us and saying, do you see yourself in this too? Do you see the ways that evil takes us captive? Do you see the ways we need redemption? And so uh, we get to our first point. Something I forgot to mention earlier. I wanted to do a lot of build up and then three rapid fire points. And so this is not like another 20 minutes for these other points. Uh, You'll be glad to know lest anyone run out the back door. But, but I had three observations or three, three kind of things. Now that we see the landscape of what Mark is saying this man's life was like, but also in, in maybe a lesser way and maybe a way that the volumes turned down a little bit more than this guy, we also see the fingerprints of this kind of stuff operating uh, in our lives. And so the first point is you can't use external solutions for an internal problem. 
And the reason this is, that's a, it's a Paul Tripp quote, and the reason that's so important is that you look at human history, all we've ever been doing is using external solutions and cures for internal problems. Did you know that the 20th century, in terms of bloodshed, genocide, and murder, had more of those things than the previous 19 combined, and yet the 20th century also saw the apex of human technology, human medicine, human philosophical development, educational systems. People told us all along, you go read your history books, Woodrow Wilson, you read the other presidents, you read the formation of the United Nations. Everybody was saying, once we get enough medicine, enough medical development, enough technology, enough political precision, enough education, evil will be eradicated, hunger will be gone. If we put everybody in the room and we kind of concocted a list right now of the places where genocide is happening, human trafficking is happening, uh, corrupt governments taking AIDS medicine and selling it to other governments for money while the people dying of AIDS never get it. If you add up all that stuff together, we couldn't produce an exhaustive list. There's too much of it going on. And I don't think it's getting better. It's getting worse. But isn't it ironic that the time when human, human prowess was at its apex, evil was also at its apex? There's never been wars like World War I or World War II. There's never been so many consecutive wars except for the history where we were trying to eradicate evil with all of our little tools, applying external solutions to an internal problem, thinking that we didn't need Jesus, that we didn't need God himself as a conqueror, but thank you very much, we can do it ourselves. So that's a macro scale. But as individuals, how do we kind of get in there, roll up our sleeves, and try to fix evil? The way the townspeople did They tried chains, they tried shackles, they tried bindings, they tried subduing. And when nothing else worked, what did they resort to? Banish. Out of sight, out of mind. Why? Because we don't want to be confronted with the fact that we're out of control, that we can't do anything about the problem. And so let's get the problem out of our sight so we don't have to deal with that disturbing reality anymore. And so they send them away where they can't hear him, where they can't see him anymore. And the guys alone. How do we kind of do this stuff too? If we use masturbation to fight lust, or if you struggle with same-sex attraction, you use pornography to try to rewire your attractions. Happens a lot. You say, I don't want to struggle with lust with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, and so best to take care of that on my own right now. We're using an external solution for an internal problem, and it never produces any life. It just spirals further out of control. Even little things like food or exercise can become external solutions to internal problems. Endorphins feel awesome. And endorphins are good. Exercise is good. But has it become your way of dealing with evil in your heart? Guilt, shame, evil in other people, chaos? Another way, do you turn to resolutions, whether they're New Year's resolutions or mid-year's resolutions, or new rules that you think the law can do only what grace can do? If I just am disciplined enough, if I just get up earlier, if I just start reading my Bible more, if I just start doing X, Y, or Z discipline, then I'll be fixed. External problems for an external solutions for an internal problem. Philanthropy, good works, involvement on campus, being nice to people. Are we doing those things to try to quell down or counterbalance the records we've accumulated by this point, right? 
Guys, we do this kind of stuff, right? We're familiar with this kind of stuff. And if we kind of hit our head against the wall, how do I solve these problems? How do I solve these problems? I can't, I can't, I can't. We tend to do what the townspeople tend to do. If I can't fix the problem, best to get it out of my sight. And so we bury it, or we banish it, or we run from it, we escape from it, never to want to hear of it again or see of it again, but it's kind of banished to the hilltops uh, because we want it to disappear. Some of you might have seen this. It was kind of big on Facebook last week, uh, an article on Yahoo News. And it was going around uh, doing a study on how different countries around the globe deal with their mentally ill or their people that they don't know how to fix. The one, and it showed pictures, which are um, very disturbing and, and very hard to get out of your mind. One thing that was in common with all the pictures was shackles. A lot of this was coming um, from Africa, uh, different countries in Africa, and you would basically have a bolt on the floor with a chain and a leg iron, and they'd be naked, just like this man was, and they'd be in the middle of nowhere, and it looks like they weren't very well fed. Society is saying, if we can't eradicate evil on our own, we don't want to be confronted with it anymore. This is why we don't watch the news, too, right? It's why we, we, don't, like, but we don't like bad news. And so cultures, like entire cultures turn a blind eye to stuff we kind of know is going on, but we'd rather not be reminded of it. What does this say about our hope or our expectation that God actually cares about evil? That God actually isn't okay with a world like this or people like this or hearts like this. We banish this stuff because we've thrown in the towel thinking that anything good could ever come out of it. Humanity has bent over backwards trying to fix the problem of evil since day two or whenever the fall happened. We've been trying to undo it. Uh, And the point is, who do you think is going to work harder to get rid of evil and to restore order and to restore goodness and to bring peace and to bring life? All of our piddly little efforts that have never amounted to anything except more evil? Or do you think God got involved? And that's where this this story kind of takes a turn. Unlucky for these demons, unlucky for this evil, God himself has come to pay them a visit. And it's the second point. Jesus is more committed and he's more qualified to deliver us from evil than we could ever be. Think about how hard you work to fight your sin. Think about how, if you're not a Christian, think about how hard you're trying to clean yourself up to go to God. That's an exhausting life, isn't it? Now, keep that picture in your mind and see here how far God went, how hard he worked, the lengths that he went to to bend over backwards to deliver us from sin. Who's more committed? Who's more eager? Who's more able? Who's more on the ball? Who's more qualified? Who's more equipped? Who's more faithful? He is. And unlike all of human history, God actually brings results immediately because he says in a couple of words, he does in a couple of words what you and I and the rest of the human race have never been able to do. He said, leave and evil left. He said, let go of this man. And it obeyed him like a little dog. This is a kind of a picture of God's commitment to that. So I got to ask us, does my sin shock me? Does my guilt, my shame shock me? Well, if it does, do you think it shocks God? Do you think his knees waver? Do you think he blinks when he stares it in the eye the way Jesus didn't blink when he stared this in the eye? He's not afraid of it. 
He knew what he was coming to do when he came to rescue his people from evil. You remember the first sermon of the semester? What Jesus said he came to do? I've come to preach liberty to the captives, good news to the poor, and to release the oppressed. This is what he was talking about. And people like us, isolated, suspicious, self-destructive, kind of stuck in that cycle out of control. Those are the kind of people Jesus came to deliver. And if you're a Christian, he doesn't tire of continuing to deliver us as we still deal with the residual of that. But here's, here's the point. I won't belabor this because it's pretty obvious in the passage. 2,000 demons, verse 1, Jesus, and five words spoken. Who wins? What kind of boxing match would that be? Would you pay money to go see that? Paul Tripp uh, commenting on that says, you'd be asking for your money back. It's a one-blow encounter. It doesn't get out of the first minute of the first round. Jesus is being held up before you as the conqueror of evil. He is the the one who conquers evil and delivers us from it. He rescues his people. He salvages this man. He restores him to life. And he's holding himself up and saying, do you trust me? Will you follow me? Will you let me deliver you? It's a little bit more complicated than just saying yes, because Jesus never asked this man if he would let him deliver him. He couldn't. He was oppressed. He didn't want to be delivered. He sat there arguing with him, saying, Uncle, let me go somewhere else. And so Jesus makes the first move, as he always does. He always makes the first move in delivering his people. He doesn't wait for us to sign a petition saying, God, would you please come? Jesus, would you please come? He always makes the first move because we can't make the first move. This guy is oppressed. He's incapacitated. And so are we. And so God makes the first move. I want to begin to wrap up with this. And the third point is actually kind of our conclusion. What what we see happening with these pigs and what we see happening with this demoniac is actually, in a way, Mark is foreshadowing what's going to happen to Jesus. Because evil has to go somewhere. You've probably picked up, by the way I'm talking about it, evil is personal, it's real, it's powerful. And it's opposed to God at every point. And so it does it, it's not like a magic trick, be gone, and it just evaporates. It has to go somewhere. It has to be judged. It has to be called for what it is. And in this instance, the evil, the demons go into the pigs and they rush off and they die. It destroys them. And Jesus will take this evil upon himself in just a few chapters in this gospel. And this is a picture of evil falling on him. And this is a picture of him becoming isolated from the community as he's crucified outside of the city on a tomb, the place of the skull. And this is what will happen to Jesus. Uh, as, as in a sense, everybody looks at him and mocks him as the rejected one, the way they mocked this guy as the rejected one, the distant one, the one we don't want to have to look at. He becomes sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God But evil does to Jesus what evil did to these pigs. But lest you think evil ever had the upper hand on your God. That is why Casey read out of Colossians that Jesus, even on the cross, even when it looked like evil had the upper hand, even when it looked like it landed the punch that knocked him down, it says, you know, if you had eyes to see, Jesus was triumphing over his enemies. The biggest uppercut that they never saw coming as he uses death to defeat death. In a sense, he takes evil on himself to defeat evil on us. Brilliant, ingenious, unthinkable plan. 
Nobody saw it coming except God. Committed to delivering his people once for all. And so what's the result? Well, this man is also not just a picture of, our, of the evil in our hearts. He's a picture of the restoration that Jesus brings. No longer naked, no longer out of control, no longer insane, no longer self-destructive, but restored, sitting, talking, in relationship with other people, in relationship with God, no longer suspicious of God, no longer bargaining with God, but saying, I want to go with you. And when he's not allowed to go with Jesus because Jesus says, you know what? We're in the Gentile lands and there's one of you who knows me and I'm going back to Israel and everybody there knows me. So you stay here and you tell them what God came to do and you show them by a restored life that actually smells like life what I came to do. And so he doesn't get to go back with Jesus but the man's life is completely changed. Question. As you seek restoration, healing, sanity, order, are you going through Jesus to get that? Or are you circumventing him, going straight from kind of the chaos of evil, the self-destructiveness, the isolation, whatever else, and trying to go around God to find some external solution that's going to bring that to us? That's what's spiraling us in misery or do you go straight to the Jesus who comes to you and doesn't always wait for you to make them our first move uh, but presents you with your needs so that you can cry out to him here's where we have to end because you have a way to leave this room tonight point number three deliverance from evil either makes you beg Jesus to stay with you or it makes you beg him to leave you there's a lot of begging in the passage first Jesus is begged to get away Why? 2,000 pigs cost a lot of money, and somebody lost their livelihood that day. (laughs) Some pig farmer. You imagine you're the shepherd, and you go back and say, "Uh, you know those 2,000 pigs you said I was supposed to watch? They're gone. And then you have to explain how. And then they go out and see the man who did it. Jesus, in this sense, uh, is directly opposite. His agenda is directly opposite what these people's agenda is. They don't really care to deal with that. They don't really see their problem with evil. They see Jesus as an interruption, an inconvenience, someone who gets in the way between them and what they want. What they want is to be left alone. What they want is a simple business where they can make their money. All they want is a kind of a good life. And Jesus stands right in the middle of that. And they say, get out of town. In the face of redemption, in the face of rescue, in the face of evil being conquered, they say, leave. Do we have things in our life? Do we have sin? Do we have preferred sin patterns that Jesus stands in between us and that? Are we tempted to say, Jesus, please leave because I have this agenda and you have that agenda. You're here to deliver me from this stuff, but I actually want this stuff. Don't hear me browbeating you. Hear me saying, okay, are we in on the joke? Do we see what's happening? It's not really life. And Jesus gets up in our face and he says, what do you want? Do you want me or do you want death? Do you want me or do you want me to leave? Because I stand between you and what you most want, which isn't God. And that's the question that we end up getting left with. But the hope of the passage is this man, a hopeless head case, 
And yet, one of the most dramatic pictures of restoration and beauty and life and growth in the Bible. Did he struggle with sin again? Of course he did. He's still a sinner. Was he a slave to sin? Absolutely not. Scripture says the sin has no dominion over you. He is alive. I said in my prayer earlier, he is not struggling to be free. That's what he was doing earlier when he was cutting himself, crying day and night. He was struggling to be free on his own. Now he's free to struggle. Sin used to be what dominated and ordered him around, and now it is an infuriatingly annoying and ever-present reality in his life, but it doesn't call the shots. And that's why he is free to see Jesus as beautiful, and that's why he is free to say, I want to go with you now. Enough of this stuff. I want you. Let's pray that Jesus would help us to see our need from him and help us to see that we're not just people who have a lot of needs. We're people who have a lot of God and a lot of his provision to meet every need and to exceed it in spades. Lord Jesus, uh, we do pray that you would uh, encourage us even with this passage that is so prone to discourage us. Would we not just be left tonight by navel-gazing at our own evil hearts, but would we turn from our sin? Would you give us grace to turn away from death and embrace life? Would you give us grace and power and sight so that we might respond to you post-rescue the way this man does? and not the way the town does? Would we leave all of our competing agendas and competing pursuits so that we might say to you, take me with you. I want to be where you are. Lord Jesus, wherever you leave us, we pray that we would also, like this man, be a testimony to all that the Lord has done for us, how he has delivered us from slavery to evil, how he is slowly restoring us to beauty again. Would we tell everybody how you have had mercy on us? I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.